0: Genesis 37, verses 3 through 8. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Before we jump into that, let's, let's pray and ask for God's help. Father, each week we come to this moment and we open your word and we want to, we want to hear from you, that we all come in experiencing life in, in just so many different ways, things ahead of us, things behind us, and we believe that you speak through your word, your spirit comes to life through your word and reveals who you are to us. And so, God, take your sto- the story from many, many, many years ago. And the words we're going to speak to it, God, make those words into life-giving words by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the, the last year, maybe, maybe over a year or so, I've entered into a new stage of parenting with my kids. What I might, might call like the lawyer stage. Which is that like, you know, early with kids, there's a, a season where uh, when you tell, when you ask one of your children to do something, they generally do one of two things. They either, they do it. Or they don't do it with considerable fanfare. Right, those are typically, you know, those are your two options. But eventually, they when uh, your kids begin to reach enlightenment, a, a third stage becomes available to them, which is is arguing. Right? is you tell your child to do something, and then it's a debate ensues. And unfortunately, I argued all the time as a child, which means in God's perfect justice. Retribution is about to be visited upon my head, and one of my children is going to argue with me to pay me back for all that I did to my parents. And I now know which child that is. And so I won't name him, but the arguments have begun. And what I find interesting is that when when he does something wrong, or when we get into an argument, like there's always a reason and a good explanation and a backstory to why he did whatever it was he did was wrong. If something went wrong was done to him, therefore this action that he just did, which was also wrong, is, is now okay. And of course, like that's all we all think. We all think that when something harmful is done to us, it justifies us to harm in response. That if something is, is wrong uh, done to us, that opens the door for us to maybe you know play with a little bit of wrong ourselves. And often what happens is when the worst is done to us, the worst in us comes out. And so this morning, we're going to start the final like, narrative arc of the book of Genesis. We've been here uh, you know, for a long time. We, we started sort of the, the creation narratives. We moved to the life of Abraham. Then we moved to the life of Jacob. And now we're moving to the life of Joseph. Jacob, who last week we, we heard became Israel. That's his new name. Uh, Israel's son, Joseph, the final narrative arc in Genesis. And what's really interesting about Joseph's narrative arc is that unlike all the other narrative arcs, Joseph really, he doesn't have significant weakness. That actually when the worst is done to Joseph, he responds with the best. That unlike the rest of the Genesis, which is like us, the worst is done, the worst comes out. With Joseph, the worst is done and the best comes out. And that's where we're going to start this morning, is because like that's that's I think where we all who we all want to be like when the when when bad is done to us we don't open the door to, for us to respond in kind we actually like how, what would it what would it be if instead of us that if when truly awful things are done to us we respond with beauty and uh, uh, the best the, like the best possible kind of life that's what Joseph's narrative arc does and so we're going to start with where Joseph's narrative life begins which is. The story about his brothers and envy, and so we're gonna kind of we're gonna break the story down in th- kind of through the three main characters in the story, which is is Jacob or Israel, his new name Israel, the brothers, Joseph's brothers, and then Joseph. So first Israel, and last week as, as I said, Jacob he wrestled with God and and then he is given a new name; it becomes Israel. And over the next few chapters, which we we didn't go into, we didn't preach from, Israel will reconcile with his brother Esau, he'll bury his father, and the focus of the story will move from Israel and his life to the life of his sons, the beginning of the 12 tribes of Israel, which will shape the rest of the narrative of the Hebrew Scriptures. But like each transition point, when we move from Abraham to Isaac, we had this problem. When we move from Isaac to to Israel, we had this problem. And now when we go to Joseph, we have this problem Again, it's verse 4. Actually, no, it's verse 3, sorry. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. This is a theme that has come out repeatedly, which is that a father shows open favoritism towards one of his sons as opposed to another. And this becomes so pronounced in this narrative, Israel actually, he creates a, like a a coat of many colors. In case there's any doubt about who his favorite is, it's like he takes a highlighter and he just highlights all over his son. It's like, everybody, I want you to see he's my favorite. In case this wasn't clear, I'm going to put just giant color uh, on my son. This is my favorite son. And we, like reading this narrative, we're like, why would you do that? Even if you had a favorite child... Like, you would never do this openly. This would create all sorts of problems. Why is Israel doing this? And the short answer is he's doing this because this is what was done to him. And if you go back to Jacob's narrative, the beginning of it, it began with, with, with Isaac, Israel, Jacob's father, showing open favoritism to his brother Esau over against him. Which created enormous problems in Israel's life. And that, but that like, raises the question, why would, why would he do it again? Why would he repeat what his father did to him that was so harmful, that ruined so much of his life? Why would Israel go and repeat the same mistake? If Jacob knew how horrible this was in his own life, why did he do it to his own sons? And the Bible's answer to that question is, is sin. And in our day, sin ultimately—it's—it's it's sort of—it's almost a silly concept or an abusive concept. It's sort of one of those two concepts. If, if, if you talk about sin, it's either silly or it's—it's it's abusive. And Francis Bufford, in his book *Apologetic*, which I think he has written uh, the most compelling chapter on sin. I've, I've read, um, you have to have a strong stomach for strong language because he has different conventions than probably is typical in the Christian world, but he writes about sin, and he says, like, essentially we've turned it into this silly co- concept about its, its indulgence or its enjoyable naughtiness. And so he writes this about how it's difficult to talk about this really important biblical idea. Here's what he says about sin. So the result is when you come across someone trying to use sin, this term, in its old sense, in the way the Bible actually like re- means when it uses this term, uh, you may you may perfectly um, you may know perfectly well in theory that they must mean something which isn't principally chocolatey. And yet, to the modern mood music of the word, it's is so insistent that it's hard to hear anything except an invocation of a trivially naughty pleasure. If someone talks gravely and earnestly about what a sorrowful burden one of this those is, the the result will be to make the speaker seem swiftly much much more alarming than the thing they're getting worked up about. For which would seem to you to be the bigger problem, the bigger threat to human happiness, a plate of pralines or a killjoy religious fanatic denouncing them? Right, he's British, so he goes plate of pralines. I don't think that, that works in our American context, but he's essentially saying if, if when this, the word sinister is out, you think of like a bowl of ice cream, that's just not, like it's not serious. You're, you're going to think that that person needs to chill out. And yet, when the Bible talks about sin, it's not, it's not enjoyable naughtiness. It's not indulgence. It's something much, much more nefarious, much more complicated. And when you see this work out in Israel's life, we remember Israel had some incredible encounters with God, incredible moments of repentance and change and new life. But apparently, whatever sin is, is so deep. Within us, that that Jacob, despite these encounters, this seed of of fatherly uh, sin towards his own sons was still there. And despite his faith, his love in God, that roots grew in him to such a place that he became the very perpetrator of the thing that ruined so much of his own life. The very thing that destroyed Israel's relationship with his own brother and his own family will now destroy Israel's family. It's sin, it's not a piece of chocolate, it's not extra dessert after dinner. It's a nature, it's a plant we have that's taken root in us that lead us to so easily fall into rhythms and patterns and that we we can know are destructive, both to ourselves and to the people around us, that we know don't bring us life, but we keep going back. Or we build our lives around those rhythm, rhythms and practices. And so that's where this narrative starts is that Israel is a sinner, and these patterns are deeply rooted in him, and now he's repeating them in his own family's life. And so, what do we do I mean, before we even jump into the narrative? What do we do with all of this? And I would love, I would love to preach on like the past informing our our current uh, sin, but I'm just really briefly two two thoughts. That first, you need to you need to know your past. That oftentimes the sinful patterns we engage in are because we learned them or something was done to us that, that created the seed in us. And, and we, haven't, we haven't fully reckoned with that past. Jacob has not, or Israel, has not, not fully reckoned with his own past. And so he repeats it. And as you think about like your own destructive patterns in your life, the way sin works itself out into your own life, your own patterns, rhythms, things you do you just keep coming back to that you know are destructive and yet you don't stop, ask the question, what in my past might, might be fueling my future, right? What in my past might be encouraging these rhythms, these habits, these practices that I don't want to keep doing and yet I keep going back to? And that's often the work of, of counseling or therapy is the therapists will often start there. What in your past is, is important? And they'll dig around there because often our past informs our There's a lot more there, but that's where the story starts. Israel's repeating the sin that we saw from Abraham with his favoritism of Isaac over Ishmael. It repeats again with Isaac in favoring Esau over Jacob, and now again. And this time it's going to have even more destructive consequences. So one, you, you need to know your past if you're going to deal with sin. right? Not a plate, this isn't about a plate of chocolate. This is about a patterns, rhythms, practices you have. All of us have. You need to know your past to understand your present. Secondly, you need to, you need to take sin seriously. And when I first moved into our house uh, about four years ago, we uh, there was one of the first things my neighbor to uh, that was right next to us said to me was that he's like, hey, you've got this plant in your backyard, and like you, it's it is it is a train wreck. You need my help, let me help you take it out. And I saw it. and It was this small little thing. I was like, I'll be fine. And so I went. I doused. I you know I doused it with uh, with weed killer and pulled the thing out, tore at the roots. Thought I got it. Right. Thought it, you know I got this thing. Um, and the next year, uh, it was right back to where it was I, before I had done the year before. So the, the second year, I, I went even more aggressively at it and, like, even took out more of the root system and, and doused with even more uh, weed killer. And this time, like, I have got it. Um, and unfortunately, our projector, it died this morning, and, and so I don't have a picture. If you, if you saw the picture of that plant today, you would see that for two years, I've done nothing because I've given up, and it's almost as tall as my house now, like 20 feet in the air. Um, and listen, if you're a yard guy and your yard looks immaculate, don't judge me and I have no interest in your opinions, okay? Just to be, to be clear about that. But the reality is when my neighbor came to me and he gave me ample warning, that, listen, this thing is not normal, let me help you. And I was like, no, I'm fine. And the Bible in similar ways like offers you ample warning about your own destructive patterns, that all of us have this in us, all of us. You can have close encounters with God in your past, and you, you haven't dealt with sin. Jesus' fundamental biggest enemies were not people who were just living it up and doing whatever, they, it was the religious leaders of the day who, who fundamentally opposed Jesus at every turn. Which means you and I in this room, if your reaction is, yeah, I repented of sin back when I became a Christian years ago. And your thought isn't, there are still things planted in me that could grow into this giant plant. If that is not your response to sin, you're not taking sin seriously. And you're going to end up, like Israel, repeating similar patterns and practices and rhythms and habits in your own life. That's why I find, and, and, and not just from a religious sense, but sociologists would say one of the most powerful things about AA Is that you begin each meeting by saying your name and that I I am an alcoholic, right? You like this is serious. This isn't this isn't a mistake. This isn't you know there's not an excuse. I am an alcoholic. I'm going to name my my thing, and that's how I start. And as Christians, we should be able to name I am a sinner, and that not mean right I I had an extra chocolate last night, or not not see that as an unserious thing, but see that as I have within my own self the roots that could destroy myself and everything around me. And unless you think you're better than Israel, better than Jacob, who had two encounters with God none of us have ever had, unless you think you're superior to him, um, unless you think you're better than him, you ha- it's true for you too. And so that's where the narrative starts. Joseph is going to or Israel is going to repeat the sins of his father and it's going to destroy his family. So that's the first first character is Israel. Second character that is here is the brothers. And it's multiple characters. It's 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 10 brothers. Um, but what we see happen is now this favoritism it gets planted into the brothers and everything gets destroyed around them. And the narrator here, the Hebrew author does a like a really powerful job of ex, of of kind of packing or unpacking their their movement from just feeling rightfully hurt and jealous of their father's actions to, to violence. So it starts in verse four, we, and I read these verses, they hated him and could not speak peacefully. And then we read in verse four or verse five, they hated him even more. It's building. In verse eight, so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. It's building again. Verse 11, and his brothers were jealous of him. So now the hatred is moved into jealousy. And then finally, in verse 18, they conspired against him to kill him. And so here in, in Israel, the seed of sin that's planted was what was done to him. In the brothers, it was, again, it was what was done to them, right? It was, it was a father showing open favoritism. And what started is probably an okay feeling of hurts or, or anger towards their father's actions grew into murder, or a desire for murder. And so what happens is they decide they're going to kill their brother. And what they do is they, they, all f- they find the time where they get Joseph alone out to pasture in this, this remote place called Dothan. They get him there. They, they attack him and throw him into a pit with no water. And they take this coat, this coat of many colors that, jo- uh, that Israel had given to Joseph, and they, they put blood on it so that they can go back and tell their brother or their father, your, your son has died. Here's the proof. And at some point in this process, Reuben, the oldest son, decides he can, he can get something out of this. And so he concocts the plan that I'm going to rescue my brother and, and then I'll be the hero to my father. And then maybe my father will show me the love that he showed Joseph because I saved his favorite son. So Reuben p- pipes up to the brothers, listen, listen we shouldn't kill him. Right, like that's a little bit over the top. Let's just sell him into slavery instead. Hoping, Ruben's hoping he can buy some time. The brothers leave Joseph in the pit. He can go and rescue Joseph from the pit and take, it, take him to his father, Jacob. Instead, what happens is the brothers, they agree to that, and they quickly sell Joseph off into slavery. And so that's, that's the narrative arc. From hatred to jealousy to violence, anger towards oppressive, selling their brother off into a life of slavery. And what this is the story of is, so, you know, point one, Israel, is about kind of just generically, what is sin? How does the Bible talk about sin? But then in kind of part two of the brothers, we get a particular sin that all of us have to wrestle with, which is envy, and envy—it's—it's it's, you know we t- I think we hear envy we think jealousy or coveting uh, but that's not quite what envy is here the best uh, the best way to describe envy or to define envy is a little parable that uh, is told in, in Rebecca de Young's book Littering Vices. Here's how the way she defines envy through a parable. She says there uh, there's an, uh, three characters: an Englishwoman, a Frenchman, and a Russian. And each of them were given one wish by a genie. And the English woman says that a friend of hers has a cottage, and she wants a similar cottage, but with two additional bathrooms and a second bath. So, you know, a cottage, but a little bit better, right? a little bit better than what my, my neighbor has or my friend has. The Frenchman says that his best friend has a beautiful blonde mistress, and he would like a mistress himself, but he wants a redhead instead of a blonde, and one that's even more beautiful and more cultured than his friend. So you see jealousy, coveting, those are those sins. Here's where envy comes in third. The Russian when asked what he would like tells of a neighbor of his that has a cow that gives a vast quantity of the best milk, richest milk, heaviest cream, purest butter. I want that cow, the Russian tells the genie, dead. The envy is not about desiring what someone else has. It's it's enjoying seeing what others have and themselves destroyed, brought down to side, to size. And I don't, like probably, you know, your initial reaction to that might be like what my initial reaction is. I don't struggle. I don't want anyone dead. Or, I wouldn't sell anyone off into slavery. I don't deal with with envy. And I think that's part of why the Hebrew narrator tells the story the way he does, which just doesn't start at murder, it starts at hatred, at anger, and then it moves progressively to. To murder, and I would just say, if if you're thinking I don't struggle with that, I, like really, you've never been pleased when someone more successful than you made a mistake or got in trouble and came back down to earth. You never gossiped about someone who maybe went a little bit further than you did, hoping hoping it would lower their reputation, the eyes, uh, the uh, the thoughts of that person in other people's eyes. And here's the thing, if you've decided that you follow Jesus, Jesus said, if you have anger against someone in your own heart in an unrighteous way, you're already guilty of murder yourself. You already want violence done against them. So Jesus doesn't give you an opt-out cause either. And that's why even I started my first point uh, with sin where I did, which is like it's it's not always a 20-foot plant in the air. Sometimes it's just a seed, and all of us have the seed in us. And the only question is, will we cultivate and let it grow in us, or will we kill it? That if you, are in, if you are human, you have to deal with envy. We have to deal with envy, and I have to deal with envy. And so I'll throw out, I'll throw out my own you know, little confession. So we're, we're part of a church, five campuses, and the other f- uh, four campus pastors and I, we're really close. Close friends, uh, two of them, many of you know, ran uh, a marathon with me last year to help uh, raise money for, for uh, my son's muscular dystrophy. So like, we're really tight, really close people but we uh, we as a campus have experienced a different reality from the beginning which is being mobile which is that often like we have all kinds of problems i.e projector bulb goes out Sunday morning like this is that's normal for us on a Sunday morning typically something's not working and listen there have been many times Monday morning updates someone has talked about something uh, that broke for them on a Sunday morning, like the one or two times that happened for them in that year. And they're like, it was so hard, and everybody freaked out. And I'm just thinking, like, that was, that's, that was like two weeks of ours. And, and then my part of my heart goes to, yeah, it's hard, isn't it? I'm glad, I'm glad you got to experience that. I'm glad that your, your morning wasn't as good as it. And, and that, that is envy. And I have to check that in my own heart, which is there, I should never take joy when someone else uh, suffers, or has a hard moment, or is knocked down to size a bit, and yet we all do. And we see that play out here, and it destroys the family. And so I want to, I just want to meditate on envy for a second. Three, three kind of thoughts about envy, as we all, you know, wrestle, whether it's a seed in your heart right now, or it's, it's like, it's a forest. Uh, three thoughts about envy. First is that envy, it always, it's always justifiable. It is fair for the brothers to be angry at the way they are being treated. It's fair. A father should not show this type of favoritism for one son to the other. And so that's one side of it. The other side of it, the dream, it's, it's also apparent not just that Israel seems to favor Joseph, but God seems to favor Joseph. Because Joseph, this dream, he has about him rising to prominence. Uh, in this day and age, dreams were incredibly important, thought to be how the God spoke to um, to people, and so Joseph basically says, "Listen, I think the gods are like highlighting me in a unique way, or the God is is highlighting me in a unique, unique way." And and so they sort of have two reasons to be like, "This isn't right. Like, why am I being lowered?" And a lot of commentators go to go to sort of critiquing Joseph here and say, "See, Joseph is kind of bratty. He's immature. He's sort of lording it over his brothers." I actually don't think that's I don't think that's fair. The narrator, narrator actually doesn't condemn Joseph. Um, in this, I think more than anything, Joseph is saying, "I've like I've I got this dream. What does it mean?" And the reason I think that is because you read the rest of the, the Joseph narrative. Uh, he does. He is not portrayed in a negative light at any moment in the story. This is the one moment where it's like, is he being bratty? Is he? I mean, he's seventeen. Is like, is this just? You know, he's probably not perfect, but but you know, he's just he's just sharing a dream with his brothers, and it leads to more and more. Envy. And so all that to say, like the brothers had reasons to feel like they were being lowered and less important and not as significant. And so envy, that's, it probably always starts in a place of justification, of, of this is, okay. I can. it's okay for me to feel this way. Um, but rather than lament, take it to God, pray it out, the brothers turn it into anger and hatred. And it's true, just generally, so many of our sins, they start in a justifiable place, right? It's not, you know, it's, they start in a place where we we have reasoned our way to a place where our action makes sense. So envy, it's always justifiable. But secondly, and I think this is most important, is that envy, it never delivers. The saddest part of this narrative to me, we didn't read these verses, but what will happen is the brothers sell Joseph off into slavery. They come back to their father. They tell their father Joseph is dead. They give him the coat of many colors with blood all over it, thinking, okay, Joseph's out of the way. Now he can maybe love us. But instead what happens is, is Israel is so inconsolable, the brothers will have to spend their time consoling their father for the loss of their brother. So instead of receiving their father's love, instead what they have to do is they have to love their father because the only son he really cared for is now gone. And that's how envy, envy works. And Joseph Epstein, he's an author, he, he says about this about envy. He says, of all the deadly sins, only envy is no fun at all. All right, like most sins have like a moment of pleasure attached to them. Envy doesn't. It just destroys you and the people around you. There's no pleasure to be had here at all. Envy never delivers. And that leads into the third thing, third reflection, meditation on envy, is that envy, it reduces our humanity. And so we watch the humanity of the brothers disappear, right? They, they, They go from hatred, anger, jealousy, to violence against another human being. And we read this, we say, uh, we read, so, so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. And they sat down to eat. That's a pretty rough transition, right? They throw their brother into a pit and, oh, I'm hungry. Let's, let's have some meat. I think there's some steak on the pit there on the, pit on the, you know, the grill. It's like they just sit down to eat. And when you, when you and I glory in the downfall of others, it creates in us, when we envy, it creates in us a certain type of human being. When a political opponent of ours falls or said something, says something dumb and they're, they're mocked for it, or when a celebrity falls and we enjoy that, we enjoy their downfall, We are doing something to ourselves, which is why I started by saying sin is—it's not a place; it's not a you know piece of chocolate. It's not—it's not naughty pleasure uh, that for us to engage in. I mean, to some extent, yes. But what sin really is is a seed planted in us that, when when grown to full reality, makes us awful people that reduce the humanity of those around us and envy, glorying. And, and enjoying in others' suffering or others' falling has nothing good in it for us but to reduce our own humanity. So this has been a really encouraging sermon so far, um, right? Take in seriously, right? Israel didn't, and it ruined his, his, his own uh, children. Take envy seriously. It's no fun. It's not going to bring anything uh, good into your your life. So that's one and two. So the third character, Joseph. And admittedly, like Joseph's pretty passive in this story. And this story is more about Israel and and Joseph's brothers to sort of set the trajectory of the story, where we're we're headed. And, and yet I'm gonna I'm gonna jump into the future of this what's ahead in the narrative, many of which you, you're probably familiar with, without fully going um, there. But but my basic point is Joseph will have every reason to use this this moment, this p- part of his life story to do harm to other people. He will have many opportunities for the harm that's done to him, for that to bring out the worst in him. But what we find repeatedly is that when the worst is done to Joseph, the best comes out in him. And in fact, Joseph will have an opportunity to destroy his brothers in the future. The dream will come true. But what we find when that moment comes, when Joseph can repay his brothers in full for what they've done to him, When evil has been done to Joseph, his best comes out. Beauty comes out in him. And in fact, in another story a couple weeks from now, and we'll talk about this at length, forgiveness, reconciliation, that will happen. Um, But the next time there will be eating with Joseph and his brothers, it won't be Joseph in a pit with his brothers eating without him. It will be Joseph at a feast at the head of the table, having invited his brothers to eat and feast with him. And forgiveness and reconciliation and making all things right amongst his family. This beautifully beautiful overturning of this story, and and that's what I think all of us like. We want that to be our lives, right? When something wrong is done to us, we don't inject wrong back into the world, but we inject something beautiful, something good, something wonderful. And if you want that to be true, you know, so sin, envy, how do, we de- how do we deal with this in a positive construct? How do we take it in the direction of Joseph? How, when evil or, or, or wrong is done to us, how does good come out of us? Two, two quick thoughts as we end this morning as we meditate on this text as well as what's ahead in Joseph's life. Is The first, the first thing is to speak grace. The one of the, I think the informative verses that help us, because a lot of what this passage is, is like, hey, here's how everything falls apart. And um, it's a lot of just depicting sin and its reality. But I do think you get a hint in verse 4 of how things could have gone differently. And we read, uh, When his brothers saw that their father loved Joseph more than his brothers, they hated him even more and could not speak peacefully to him. That the first things that the first thing that goes is is kind language towards their brother, kind words towards their brother, grace towards their brothers. Uh, which means that if envy like leads us to to not be able to speak grace towards another person, a great way to kill envy in us is to do that intentionally—to speak grace towards others. As you've been processing this this morning, like who are you most likely to be envious of? Who are you most likely to? enjoy the downfall of someone else. Like, who that? Who might that be? Well, this week, find an intentional way to speak grace towards that person or to that person, if you know them. One of my life verses, uh, it's Ephesians 4.29, and there Paul the Apostle writes, don't let any corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, for a long time, adults use this verse to uh, tell people like me in middle school, this is the no cussing verse. And there's like five words you're not allowed to say. It's corrupting talk. Don't let it come out of your mouth. And that's, you know, you can probably use that for that. But that's not what Paul's saying, exactly. He said the point isn't to say, don't say corrupting things. Um, his actual point is, is that you should say grace-filled things. Right? Your words should give grace to those who hear them. I think that's just a great, that's a great thing to do later today. It's just to meditate. Of all the many words that we spoke this week, how many gave active grace to the ones who heard them? You know, 5%, 10%, 20%? Right? Are my words giving grace? So speak grace. It's a great way to kill envy. And you see, I think you see this, right, in our, our, our just tense cultural moment. There's just moments when it's like obvious that two people agree, but they can't, they can't say that. And that's, that's envy at work, is I can't speak kind words anymore. I can't, well, there's no more common ground. I will speak no grace to you. So undo that. Speak grace, one. And then secondly, and this is, this is jumping a little bit ahead to Joseph's narrative, but you need to forgive absurdly. And again, this is a future sermon, but Joseph will fully forgive his brothers for what they do to him in this story. And we'll do an entire sermon on that, that uh, in a few weeks. But, but when was the last time you forgave someone when, when you shouldn't have? Right, and a little, I speak that a little bit tongue-in-cheek, because Jesus basically said, if you're a Christian, you never have the right to not forgive anybody. It's like basically, if I've forgiven you of, of an internal worth of debt of sin you can't hold something less than that against anybody else. You just can't. You can't do that and take Jesus seriously. But when was the last time you forgave someone when, just in earthly terms, you should not have forgiven them? Because what's powerful to me, again, about Joseph's story is that more than any other uh, of the, the patriarchs, the Abraham, Isaac narrative, more than any other of those stories, Joseph will have reason to do wrong to people around him, completely justified. But he never will. He'll never turn to violence. He'll never leave someone behind. He's grace-filled. He's kind. You never get a whiff of the worst in Joseph, um, even when the worst is done to him. And to be clear, forget what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not saying what you did doesn't matter. I don't care about it. It's not a big deal. Let's just forget it. That's, forgiveness is not that, and that's not what will happen in the Joseph narrative ahead. What forgiveness is? Forgiveness is saying what you did matters. It was wrong. It hurt me. Here's the cost I paid to it, but I I will not pay you back. And I will, my disposition towards you will be, not as if that thing never happened, but I will refuse to make you pay the the consequences, the the pain that I felt, and I will not make you feel that. What I felt because of what you did to me, I will not make you feel that, and I I forgive you. That's what forgiveness is, and Christians should be the people who most embody that in our daily life. Because like, our story is one of absurd forgiveness. And the only way we can become people that speak grace on a regular basis or forgive absurdly is if we more fully enter into the life of Jesus, which one of the, like Jesus' life ends at a table with, with, with his 12 disciples. And he says there, he says at that meeting or at that, at, that, at that meal, one of you is about to betray me. right? One of you is about to, to go and sell me off. And the disciples are insistent, like, so who is it? Like, what? no, no one would do that to you. She Jesus, I wouldn't do that to you. Jesus, and what's, what's powerful for me about that story is not that none of the, like, no one knows who it is, um, but that Jesus makes clear his betrayer is there, and he still serves his betrayer. He still offers him communion, offers him the, offers him the opportunity to be in fellowship with him. And we like we reenact that story every week. We gather our, our, our as a community around the table of Jesus, around the same meal Jesus was eating with his disciples in that, that moment. And we who spend our week in envy or in sin and not dealing with the things in us that are broken or wrong or not who we should be, we get to gather around his table and he eats with us and he both speaks grace to us and he also offers for, for absurd Forgiveness, right? He speaks grace. He says, this is my body. It was broken for you. Like, it's hard to be more gracious than to give your own life to someone else. And he forgives absurdly. He says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. His forgiveness is his blood shed. And so we're going to do that. We're going to do that in a moment. But first, we're going do to that, do that through song, to enter into this, this story that should kill envy in us and should make us people of grace, speech, and absurd forgiveness. Let's pray, Father. Having confessed already the envy, it's it's a part of my experience. It's part of what I think, do, say. And then I, I look at, at at Jesus, who who is here to meet us with forgiveness and kindness, and a word of grace. God, the only way we can be people who leave behind envy and don't, don't recreate it in ourselves. The only people who can, can leave sin behind and, and respond with, with truth and beauty and goodness when wrong is done to us is for us to more fully enter into the story of Jesus. And so now, God, as we do that through song, help us. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.